Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. Hi, I'm Ray Didinger. And I'm Glenn Macnow. When the pandemic hit and sports shut down in March 2020, Ray and I knew we would need alternative ways to entertain our audience. With no games to discuss, we started calling on some of our friends, Merrill Reese, Dick Vermeil, Larry Anderson, guys we knew had fascinating stories of how life's path got them where they are today. We conducted hour-long interviews, way longer than we normally allow on the radio, and we gave the feature an obvious name, Tell Us Your Story. We figured then that we would keep the feature going, well, only until sports returned. Well, it's now nearly two years later, and while the games are back, we learn from our listeners that you want us to continue with Tell Us Your Story. We've now conducted 100 of these conversations, Hall of Famers, local favorites, ballplayers, broadcasters, all with fascinating tales to tell. We've heard stories of heroism and heartache, humble beginnings and turning points, and so we decided to put together some of the best moments of those 100 episodes. This show focuses on great moments and great performances. And in 2020, we talked to George Foreman, about the night in Jamaica that he faced Joe Frazier. Intimidation, there's nothing wrong with that word. Uh, we've seen Joe Frazier fight Quarry, who was the best counterpuncher in boxing, Jerry Quarry. Uh, Jimmy Ellis, who had Angelo Dundee and Mohammed skill and exposure. Joe Frazier would knock you out. And, and so Saddle would give me this, uh, this guy you're going against tonight. He's got a glass jaw. He can't take a punch. He doesn't have a right hand. We could always say that about everyone we fought, but going into the dressing room with Joe Frazier, we looked at each other and, and said, don't even go there. <laughs> he can't take He There was no pep talking you can give. I had to be ready. Joe Frazier, everything you see in a nightmare as a fighter, he was so short down there, you couldn't get him with your jab. Everything that you didn't want to face in boxing, Joe Frazier had it. And so getting out of that dress room was a, a chore for me that night. I had to walk all the long walk into the ring thinking, you're going to fight Joe Frazier. Scary. That was scary. I, I guess it was Dick Sadler that, that mapped out the strategy for you, which was when you watch it now, you, you kept pushing Joe off. Like every time, like Joe's whole approach, and he did, he had this successfully against Ali, was close the distance between the fighters. He was always coming in. He was always boring in, throwing that left hook. But every time he got close to you, you sort of pushed him off and got him out to your punching distance, and that's where you were able to swing the fight in your on your side. Uh, and uh, to really think about it, remember I had 37 boxing matches. I fought all the time, all the styles in the world I fought face those guys. I was doing those things to Joe Frazier that I had been doing all over the country for about almost three and a half years. So here he is trying to get close to me. It was like a stop, block, get out of the way. Those were my things I was told to do from the day I turned pro. And in Sunday Liston, we trained and spar together. We weren't allowed to really uh, go out at each other. Liston was very uh, protective of me. So 
I had to learn stopping, blocking, get out of the way from lifting too. He'd be over there looking for me too, and I wouldn't run. So I had developed this defensive style and would have punched to go along with it. That was me totally. I was right in my uh, uh, where I should be with Joe Frazier. Probably defensively, it was an easy fight. It was an easy fight for George Foreman, not so much for Joe Frazier. Hey, one of our favorite interviews of 2021 was when we got to talk to local hoops legend Jimmy Lynham, the pride of Havertown. Uh, and when I think of Jimmy Lynham, even though he was coach and general manager of the Sixers, I always think first of his tenure as the coach at St. Joe's. And then I always think, of course, of the legendary game in 1981 when the Hawks upset number one ranked DePaul. If you don't believe me, just listen to Joe Conklin do his imitation. Anyway, of course, when Ray and I talked to Jim Lynham, we talked about that game. Well, that's real simple, Glenn. The message going in during the year, DePaul had played in Philly. Back then, we played doubleheaders at the Palestra. So we had played the first game, and myself and most of my players are going to watch the second game. The second game is LaSalle, DePaul. The LaSalle backcourt is Kevin Lynham, my young, one of mm. my younger brothers, and his high school teammate, Greg Webster, who's at LaSalle on a golf scholarship. He's a very good basketball player. That's the starting backcourt. DePaul beats LaSalle. I'm going to call it a three-point wire job. So what I did to prepare my team, no scouting report. I took them into a hotel room the night before, and I said, all right, this is going to be sweet and simple, guys. I said, we're going to watch 10 minutes of tape. And I turned the light switch off, put the 8-millimeter camera on, and we watched the last eight minutes of DePaul LaSalle. Not a word said. Not like, all right, watch McGuire here going right. Not a word. Silence in the room as the tape plays. Tape finishes. I flipped the light switch. I said, you ready? If that backcourt with LaSalle of Lineham and Webster can play DePaul to the wire, I think we have a shot. <laughs> well, you did. And you did. You know, uh, your team had a, was on a real roll there. I mean, you had, you, as Glenn said, you had a really good year. Um, you had already scored one upset in the game against Creighton. You beat them by, I think, a point or two to get to DePaul. But then um, the, DePaul, everybody expects DePaul to win. As They, they have McGuire, they have Cummins, they have a, a bunch of pros on that team. Um, but it comes down to the end, and there's um, a, a just a sort of a make-or-break kind of a one-on-one situation, and a guy named Skip Dillard, who they was such a such a deadly foul shooter, they called him Money Dillard. He never missed. Misses the front half of the one-on-one. Uh, you guys get the rebound. Warwick brings it up the court, passes to Lonnie McFarland. He gets it off to John Smith. Bang! You guys lay it in and win the game. Um, I, I remember you you telling a story one time. That years later, and I mean years later, you're watching your favorite TV show, which was 60 Minutes, and all of a sudden, here comes a segment about Skip Dillard on, uh, and he's doing an interview with Mike Wallace from a penitentiary, and talks about and and, 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 and and an orange jumpsuit, talking about the day that his life turned in the wrong direction, and it was that same day. And you said, "Well, I'll let I'll let you tell the story, but what a jaw dropping moment that must have been for you to see how one moment that was so good for you could have been so wrong for somebody else." Uh, you just uh, described it, uh, Ray, and it was just a, a happenstance. I was in my uh, house. Uh, you know, uh, I did like to watch 60 Minutes. I was by myself, and I, my recollection, you know, I watched like the first segment. I think it was the third segment, and boom, all of a sudden, and obviously I recognized the name Skip Dillard. I had no idea, you know, that what had transpired in his life after that particular game. But, yes, he's being interviewed, uh, he said that uh, he thought he was on top of the world, thought he was going to play in the NBA. And uh, this uh, devastating loss, he took it personally. He was never able to shake it because he missed a foul shot that would have won the game. And, uh, you know, they back then DePaul was, you know, they were the, the deal in Chicago. Uh, this was their, their, their final, like, run to finally win an NCAA championship. And, he, he just he took it personally, and it, it, it was a, just a, a devil that never left him, and his life went south after that. And, yeah, it was, it was uh, I sat there almost numb for I don't know how long after the show ended. Just uh, here I am, you know, what's such a big moment in my life, and, you know, people still talking about it years later, and it sent somebody else's life into 
that polar opposite direction. Among the great moments in Big Five history, few can top Villanova's win over North Carolina in the 2016 NCAA championship game. It ended on a buzzer beater by Chris Jenkins, and we asked head coach Jay Wright the obvious question, how did you feel at that moment? You know what, Glenn? I, I swear, I, I <laughs> it's just... Um... I don't, I don't, I haven't figured out a way to explain this shit. It's not that big of a deal to me. The whole run was so enjoyable, you know, and, and like years later you realize um, it, it has impacted, it has impacted uh, our, my family's life, our life. Definitely. People, you know, treat you so much, so differently. And I've finally gotten to, um, I've come to grips with it. People in Philadelphia will thank me. You know, they'll, they'll come up and say, hey, thank you. Thanks for the championships. I never – I kind of thought they were saying congratulations, you know. So I, I just say, yeah, thanks. I, I, but I'm starting to realize, like, it, it's a part of Philadelphia sports history. You actually said it in the intro, which is – that means a lot to me because, you know, I, I do – I love the Philadelphia – I love being a part of the Philadelphia sports um, scene. I, I just, I love, you know, I just love the, I love the Phillies. I love the Sixers, the Eagles, the Flyers. I, so the fact that we are a part of that is, I'm starting to understand that and that Philly takes some pride in it. I really like that. I like that a lot. Um, the journey, go, like six, six weeks, uh, you know, leading up, you know, Big East tournament and leading up to that national championship. It's it's a player and a coach's dream when everything's just everything's working, everything's in sync, everything's positive. Like you, that's what I loved about it. Like having the you know the ring or, or the championship really is not big, that big of a deal. But having had that experience with that group of guys was so incredible. It's euphoric to just be in it when you're. You win the you, you you win the second round and you're practicing for three days going to the Sweet 16, and then you win the final eight. You go back and you're practicing to go to the Final Four and those those practices and you're on the bus ride going to the arenas and it's oh man it's that's you don't know how uh, how exhilarating that is or how exhilarating it's going to be until you go through it. Speaking of exhilarating, for most Philadelphia fans, not much can top the 2008 Phillies championship season. The last game of the World Series, the last inning, the last at bat, of course, came down to Brad Lidge, who was perfect that season, 48 for 48. Lidge had to face Eric Hinsky of the Tampa Bay Rays. And in this interview, Lidge told us how he and the team approached that moment. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, I, I had... Uh... So when he comes in to pinch it, and by the way, uh, yes, we are we are in the same same fantasy football league, and we don't talk about that moment too much. <laughs> we, we've said it maybe once or twice, but you know he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, he'll he'll bring it up actually. But um, anyway, so I'd faced Eric Hinsky once in my life before, and, and and his rich doobie came out to the mound, and we met on the mound, and the infielders come in, and you know we're all standing there around the bump, and and Chooch comes out, and you know Chase, Jimmy, Reinhardt, and and. And, and Doobie's like, hey, listen, uh, you know, do you know what you're doing here? And I said, yeah. I said, well, what? Because we'd already gone over the scouting report if I was going to face him. He, I, he just wanted to make sure, pretty big moment right there, wanted to make sure I knew what I was going to do. And I said, I'm not throwing him a fastball. I know that. And Doobie's like, wait, why? I said, because the last time I threw it, he waffled it and hit it off the, hit it off the wall in right center field. So he's just going to get straight sliders. And, and I remember in that moment, for some reason, feeling so kind of like calm and uh and like ready for the at bat like i knew what i was doing and i knew the thought process and and uh i even kind of you know cracked the joke a little bit at that point so so rich doobie kind of looked at me out of the corner of his eye like what the hell's wrong with this guy he goes back into in, into the into the dugout and uh i think that kind of relaxed everybody a little bit and it, it relaxed myself too and um and of course so chooch comes out and he's like well hey, okay if you're only gonna throw sliders he's like i'm not gonna put down any signs we're just gonna throw sliders until he's out i was like all right let's do it so he goes back down there and sits down and, and, you know, that's sure enough what we do, you know, like, able to get ahead of, of Eric Hinsky with a couple, you know, good sliders. And, and, uh, and then he kind of fouls it one or two off and uh, maybe takes one for a ball. But I do remember coming set and gripping that last slider and, and kind of the feel of the scenes in my fingertips. And I remember 
I was like, oh, man, this is the one. Like, I, I could feel that that was going to be the pitch. And uh, so in my mind, I was like, just, you know, make it look like a fastball because he still thinks at some point a fastball is coming. So make it look like a fastball for a strike and get on top and let the bottom drop out. And, uh, you know, fortunately uh, came out of my hand, and, and that's what it did. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Well, and then just to follow, and then the emotion afterward, I, I, I know there's the, you know, the big pile up on the mound, but I'm just curious, did you, did you look at the stands? Did you look for somebody? What was the feeling afterward? Uh, oh, I'll tell you. I mean, at that moment, I, I just kind of, when he swung and missed, I, I just, you know, it, it kind of hits you in, in these little waves. Like, you can't believe that that just happened. Like, I, I just looked up, and I, I remember, you know, looking up and or jumping. I don't even remember. You know, falling on my knees, and I looked up, and I was just like, oh, my God. And Chooch is running out, and I was like, oh, my God, we just won the World Series. And, and you know, he's running out there, and uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, <laughs> 25 dudes, 200-plus pounds are jumping on top and piling on top. And I always tell people, like, you know, I can't explain that moment exactly. I can only tell you that I was on the bottom of a pile of all those guys, and I was still screaming for joy. I couldn't catch my breath, but I was still screaming for joy because I was so excited and so thrilled at that moment. So, you know, I, I think uh, it, it's tough to describe, of course, the emotion and the culmination of that moment when you're, you know, that's that's something that uh, you, you've always wanted to be a part of and always, uh, you know, in, in some way. I mean, maybe when I was young, you know, certain full circle back moment, I probably thought to myself that I'd be hitting uh, you know, the, the, as, as, a, as a youth baseball player, I'd be hitting the walk-off home run in a World Series, but uh, pitching it obviously uh, uh, felt just every bit as good. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, my family was there and everything else, and everyone gets to go out in the field afterward, and it's just uh, an incredible moment. Andrea Kramer is a Philadelphia native, the daughter of a judge who grew up as a rabid football fan. She followed her passion to a job at NFL Films and then ESPN, where she became one of the most respected reporters in the business. Her ultimate thrill, of course, came in 2018 when she won the Pete Rozelle Award at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This was her reaction. So I get a call from the Hall of Fame, and they, they left me a message because I was in the middle of the shoot. And I, it was the day that he said he wasn't coming, so I figured, oh, boy, they're going to need some extra programming. You know, I've hosted some interviews there before. They probably need me to host something. So I get around to calling Dave Baker back, the, the ex- uh, executive director of the Hall of Fame, and he tells me, and I was like, oh, are you effing kidding me? Are you, you know, and he's like, well, I'm glad that that's your reaction now and not live. And I couldn't believe it because I really, really, really never thought it was going to happen. And um, you make your speech on Friday night at the Gold Jacket dinner, and then uh, they present you with the plaque. And uh, Dave Baker walks me out to the stage and um and presents me with the award, and I got a standing ovation. All the Hall of Famers on the stage are standing, and I'm, like, numb. And Dave says to me under his breath, you can, uh, there's something you can actually hear. He goes, they're standing for you. And the people in the, the crowd in the stadium was standing for me, and it was like this surreal moment. I didn't, you know, you feel like, you feel like you're up there for 10 hours, and it's probably 10 seconds. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should curtsy, like, pull back, you know, go back to my dancing days and, like, just, you know, I didn't know what to do. It was, it was just this surreal moment, and, um, and it was because my, my, my parents are both passed away, and I know that they were looking down, but it was just having my husband, my son, my father-in-law, who's like a second father to me, having my closest friends there. That was it, man. That, that, that's it. Like I said in my Hall of Fame speech to my son, you know, I always told you, Will, mommy goes away because she has to, not because she wants to. And I hope that this provides some mem- measure of validation for why I went away. But it was, a, it was a really emotional weekend because I never thought it would happen. This being a show about great moments, I can't imagine many things greater than being chosen to carry your country's flag at the opening ceremony of the Olympics. That's exactly the honor that came to Dawn Staley, daughter of Philadelphia, captain of the 2004 U.S. Olympic women's basketball team. Here is Dawn from our interview last year talking about how that great moment came upon her. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a pretty cool process. Um, that process is, is this. Um, all the captains of all the teams that are participating in the Olympics, we, we get together in one place and – what happens is those captains bring in candidates for the flag bearer. And we, and there are as many as 20, 25 
um, nominees. And, I mean, these nominees are, are made up of people who have overcome life-threatening um, illnesses or injuries, you know, people who have, you know, to me have uh, have contributed so much more than than me. So my teammates wanted me to nominate myself. And I'm the only one that's that's in the room that's a nominee. So I didn't really think I had a shot and I, I was I felt kinda embarrassed just nominating myself. And especially with all you know, all those things that other people have gone through, um, I just felt like, oh, okay, I I'm gonna do what my teammates told me told, told me to do and that is um nominate myself. So I talked about being a three-time Olympian. I talked about um, having a foundation at the time. I talked about uh, playing and coaching because that's what I was doing. And then and then we all take a vote. We all take a vote. And we, we come up with the top five nominees. And once we got that, and we, it, it's a pretty fast process after we hear about all the nominee stories um and then top five and then we take another vote and then we need to come back with the top three and then we take another vote and we come up with the top hmm. the top person and i could not believe after after round one i'm just like really i mean like they have me on here and then after the second round when we got to the top three i was a part of the top three and i'm like oh no <laughs> and then and then they come back and they say, I'm the flag bearer. And I'm like, really? Like, I, I really didn't know all that. I, I didn't know all that the being a flag bearer entailed. Like, I had, I had no idea until, until I had my meeting with the committee. And they were pretty, you know, strict and stern and, and they told me, they told me, um, never tilt the flag, never tilt it. You know, when, when you walk into the stadium, that flag is held high until you, until you hand it off to, you know, the, the person that I'm supposed to hand it off to. And then they said, no matter how you're received, because sometimes people aren't, you know, going to receive United States well. So if you hear booing, hissing, cheering, you have the same face. You smile. And I was like, okay, those are, you know, pretty easy instructions. And and that's what I did. But I couldn't help but to smile. Once I moved into the, when I walked into the arena, uh, the stadium, because it was the most exhilarating, the most unexpected, the most, just organic feeling that you could have um, in sport. I mean, I, I do equate it to like a royal wedding because everybody's watching you and all over the world. And I'm just yeah. thinking this, this, this little girl from North Philly is the flag bearer. And it's, it's crazy. That was a great story, and we've got a lot more coming up, including – Tales of Olympic Miracles, Stanley Cups, and one of our favorite players from the 2017 Eagles talks about his view of the Super Bowl parade. Along with Ray Dinger, I'm Glenn Mack now, bringing you the best of Tell Us Your Story on 94 WIP. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. If your day sounds like... We need the report ASAP. You deserve Medella. If you've persevered through... You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp but refreshing taste. Or if you overcame. Two more reps, two more. You deserve this ice cold reward. Medella, the Markable Fighter. Trick responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. I'm Ray Didinger, along with Glenn Macnow, and you are listening to the best of Tell Us Your Stories, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, no one will ever forget that moment. It's been called the greatest upset in sports history. And the man who made that call, Al Michaels, joined us to relive what we now know as the miracle on ice, the U.S. hockey team's win over the mighty Soviets at the 1980 Winter Olympics. Yeah, first of all, we had no idea that the U.S. could win the game. And our hotel was just a few blocks from the arena. The game started at 5 o'clock, and I know Ken and I, walked over from the hotel at about 2.15. And I remember part of the conversation was me saying to Ken, who had just retired after winning in a multiple Stanley Cups and Vezina trophies with the Canadians, the best we could hope for would be 3-1 Soviets midway through the second period. Uh, what we really feared, or I really feared, was 5 nothing Soviets 12 minutes into the game. Uh, Kenny and I had been to the Soviet Union about three months prior, we watched a tournament called the Izvestia Tournament, which featured all of the Olympic teams except the U.S. team. And we watched the Soviets, and Kenny had played against them, so he knew what, what they were all about. But I, it was hockey like I had never seen it. Uh, they made it look so simple. Uh, of course, the rink is so much wider than it is in the NHL. The cross-ice passing was beautiful. They were so much faster than any team. I mean, they, they were the best team in the world. They were. Going up against a bunch of you know pretty much college kids, uh, good good hockey players, but college kids. Average age for the U.S. team was 22. You know the Soviets were listed as students and and soldiers, but they were professional hockey players. That's what they did 11 months uh, of the year. So we thought, you know, just if the game can stay, if it sounds close, we'll keep an audience. And then of course we you know we walk into uh, an amazing game and. I look back at that game, too, and you know, what people forget is the U.S. trailed three times in the game. How often does a team mm-hmm. trail one nothing, 2-1, 3-2, tie it, get outshot 39-16, two and a half to one, they're outshot, and win the game. So that whole thing was so surreal. It was almost an out-of-body experience. And um, here we are 41 years later. And, of course, Mike Arruzzioni's made an entire career about, you know, going out on the road and doing these great speeches, and people love it. Because I've done a whole bunch of them with him through the years, and, and people can't get enough of it. And Mike and I just, you know, laugh like crazy every time we talk about, man, oh, man, we've dined out on this thing for 40 years. Who could have believed that? <laughs> so we knew <laughs> when this thing happened, you knew it was big, but everything has a shelf life. But to have a shelf life of four decades and not, you know, not slowing down either. I mean, the 50th anniversary, uh, hope I'm around to, to see this baby, uh, <laughs> will be just as big. Because uh, it was a moment in time that uh, it would be very hard to recapture all of the elements that went into making that um, what it was. 
Well, let's stay with that miracle on ice for one more interview, and let's get the perspective of the captain of that 1980 team, my college classmate, Micah Ruzioni. In this cut, Mike talks about, well, kind of the afterglow of the event, after the gold medal, how it affected the country from Washington, D.C. to Boston to his hometown of Winthrop, Massachusetts. Well, after the game, after we beat Finland, um, we get up the next morning to go to the White House, President Carter uh, I had all the Olympians go to the White House. So we got on a plane. Um, I think it was Air Force One. It was one of the president's planes, and we flew to Washington. And when we got off the plane and the bus going to the White House, the, the, the streets were lined, you know, four, five, six rows deep, people waving flags, people congratulating us on our victory. And my teammates and I were like, wow, this thing is crazy. Then we got to the White House and President Carter and all the people there, the media, the attention was crazy. Then we got on a plane. Uh, the four of us were going to fly back to Boston, but Jimmy went to Atlanta to sign with the plane. So me, O.C., and uh, Callahan and Silky get on the Eastern Airlines shuttle. And we get on the plane, and the plane started applauding. And we were looking around, going, what's this? So then we landed in Logan, and the terminal was packed with people and police and state police and you know, media. You know, it was, it was wild. Then I, I go back to my hometown. My hometown is a small little town, one square mile you know, 20,000 people, and I think 18,000 were at the bridge to meet me when I came home. <laughs> and, and, and it was wild. Then, then I got up the next day and went to New York to do uh, Good Morning America, I think it was. And I got on the plane. Everybody in the plane started applauding, and I turned around. I didn't know who got on the plane. And I was like, and then it kind of hit me, and I think it clearly hit my teammates. And now 40 years later, if you see the letters I get, the mail I get, what this moment meant to people for, for a lot of different reasons. For, for some, it was a hockey game, but for many, many people, it was uh, we brought some pride back to a country that at a time was uh, maybe similar to what we're dealing with today, divided and not sure of where we were going, and the economy and gas lines and hostages and the threat of a Cold War. And all of a sudden, we come along, and I think it just showed what makes this country so great. You know, when, when you think you're, you're in the dumps, uh, something happens to, to bring everybody back together again. And, Clearly, that moment was that. And I, I think that's why it resonates today. You know, it was voted the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. And, and not because of the victory, but I think what the victory meant to a nation. It's not like the Super Bowl when one city wins and one loses and other teams don't care because they're not there. Uh, it's the Olympics and it's a nation. And, and I think clearly that's what separated our moment from others and what clearly separates it today. I don't know if it'll ever happen again in sports, but clearly, you know, that was a moment that uh, touched a lot of people's lives for a lot of different reasons. In 1974, Philadelphia had its own miracle on ice, the Flyers' rollicking run to its first Stanley Cup. The Broad Street Bullies upset the Boston Bruins, and the next day, two million people filled the streets of Center City for a parade that team captain Bobby Clark will never forget. Well, when we started out, I mean, they were right at the parking lot on Broad Street at the Spectrum there. And I remember the driver... In the convertible I was in, he's, it'll clear as soon as we get out of the parking lot. It just never cleared. It was it was an amazing, you know. You know how do you describe these things? You couldn't put two million people together now and have no crime, like we had in those days. It was just a celebration. Mm -hmm. Today's world, you, you'd be scared to death to have two million people come into the city of Philadelphia. You know, it's a, and I'm not being political. I'm just being realistic here. Yeah, that was a two million dollar with no crime. I think one horse, if I recall correctly, one horse stepped on a woman's foot or something. There's <laughs> one horse. There was some, you know, yeah. nothing. Yeah, just a celebration of all good feelings. It was, it was really special. I know that one of the things that I remember was. There was a bus that was, they made the press bus, but also in addition to the media that was on the bus were all the families, all the parents of you guys. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so your, uh, so your dad was there and then Schultz's dad was there. And I, I rode next to Joe Watson senior. Uh, uh, he was in the, oh, yeah. he was in the seat next to me, the, 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 the butcher from, from Smithers. Uh, yeah. But I, I mean, it must have, as, as blown away as you guys must have been by the reaction in the city. I can only imagine what the reaction of the families was. I mean, what did your parents make of that celebration? I'm sure they never saw that many people in one place ever in their life. Oh, no. They, I mean, probably in those, at that time, there was probably 25 million people in all of Canada. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they just, 
again, it's, oh, mm-hmm. you know, you, there's no way you could ever describe how my, my mom and dad saw what they saw and how they felt is beyond any, um, any vocabulary that I would have to describe it. Did, at one point, didn't they have, didn't the police have to get you and Bernie out of the parade route because your car was just being so swamped by people? They were starting to worry about your safety? It wasn't safety so much. The, the guy who was driving me in a, had a brand new, I believe it was a Cadillac convertible at the time, and he was a private citizen. I, I don't know how he ever got, how he got in, and but there was all private citizens driving us, and we were, I don't know, close, getting fairly close to City Hall, and the car was full of ribbons and beer and everything, and he was worried about the car being scratched and everything, and he should have been. He was right, and I finally said to him, Look, if you can get us out of here, we'll just go back to the Spectrum and wait until it's all over. Because I said, uh, I don't want your car wrecked. And I wasn't worried about getting hurt. It was just everybody being friendly. But it was it was just, I guess someone could have got hit in the head with a can of beer or something. But I was enjoying myself. But it was it was too, I don't know how to, again, I can't describe wild. it. It was just so many, too wild. Yeah, it was too wild. Yeah. It was, I mean, how many topless girls up on telephone poles can you look at in one day? <laughs> Well, Bob, I don't really know the answer to that one, to be honest. With apologies to every other great play in every title run in our city's history, nothing was more exciting and surprising than the Philly special in Super Bowl 52. The head referee of that game was Gene Steratore. He joined us last year for Tell Us Your Story, and we asked him, did he have any sense that that trick play was coming? You know, it's a great question. And, and, you know, when you do see the coaches the hour before kick, uh, you do ask that. And, and, and truthfully, even before that in the locker room, two officials are assigned to go to each, each uh, team's locker room. Uh, so before they get to the field to meet with the coach briefly for the special teams numbers of players, uh, for things of that nature. And part of that process and that, that meeting with the coaches is – Coach, is there anything today that you may do that's really unusual that you may may or may not do that you would like to enlighten us on so that we would be prepared for that in the event that it happens? Mm-hmm. Now, I can tell you, uh, uh, 50% of them say get, tell you what they may have, and it may be something very generic, like, you know, we may onside kick early or, or unexpectedly. Thank you. Uh, others may give you a little background about how their fake punt works. Um, and, and the other half say, no, we're good. Uh, and in this case, Coach Peterson was good. So, mm-hmm. no, we had no inkling uh, of the play. Uh, for the naysayers with the formation, we, we don't split hairs in the NFL on every play. Uh, naturally, because of the outcome of that play, it, it has been scrutinized as much as any play in the NFL, uh, outside of a couple other catches maybe. So, but but we never put a lot of emphasis on that. The formation was fine for Alshon. Nick Foles' situation to be very lost now that we're three years past was a, a, an uneasy situation for me personally because we were worried about having a kicking ball on the field or having a regular football on the field, and we weren't sure what they were doing coming out of timeout. So the ball really wasn't placed yet. Once we saw Nick Foles come back onto the field, we were exchanging a K-ball for a regular ball. So that took our attention briefly. Uh, when they broke the huddle and Nick started up toward the line of scrimmage, for those that don't know the rule, if he was within one yard of the center and, and walked that close, he could not go in motion then and stay in motion at the snap. He would have had to stop and reset but he floated up and Nick was smart he didn't even go behind the center if you really watch it and he didn't get within one yard of the line of scrimmage he floated forward and then just went into motion as he did so well and so casually on the play but as a referee that's just not something that you're thinking about as a quarterback is kind of walking or sauntering up toward the line about his proximity so once he left there and then the inevitable happened the first thing that went through my mind was sheer fear about how close did he come, knowing, again, it would be so scrutinized to that center. 
or 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 that area. Uh, so I, I perfectly transparent. Wasn't really sure how close he got. I knew he wasn't under center, but you know, you just don't know. Uh, and when we you think you got know, it right. Yeah, by think, the way. yeah, I think you, you got it right. We, we, we <laughs> have no. We're good. That's we're right. say no totally more. We're good. Team. Totally unbiased. I mean, it was nonsense. You got it right. I appreciate. It. There but you go. It was done right. Right which next. I, which I was happy to say. Yeah, it yeah. was right. Yes, yes. Of course, the Eagles won that Super Bowl, and the city went wild. Millions of fans celebrated in the streets, and four days later, the championship parade rolled through Center City to the steps of the Art Museum. Chris Long had won a Super Bowl the previous year with the New England Patriots, but he felt something special when he shared this win with the fans of Philadelphia. He talked about it when he joined us for Tell Us Your Story. They were both really special, and this isn't going to be a political answer. There's no doubt about it. I've said this before. Like, You know, Philly was different. It was just different because of the people had waited, you know, 50 years to see a Super Bowl. You know, you run into people older than my pops and my mom, you know, that tell me, Hey, they're waiting for this thing. And that's special. That, that to me is, that's why you do it. Like if we just played on a, on a field with nobody watching, you know, like people always like say I could play in an alley and that, yeah, you could, but it wouldn't be as fun. You know, it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't take the same pride in what you're doing. The civic like part of this thing, like that Philly shared in this thing. And I'd only been there two years, but the way I felt at home there, you know, at that point, this is my first year. It just was like a, a fairy tale for some of the guys that got there. I mean, like to find a home, some of us, and that home can be a place where we can celebrate this, this thing that people have been waiting for, for a long time. And we get to be a part of that. You know, the Eagles could win another five or ten will always be the first, and I think that's really cool. And it, it means more to me than almost anything in my life that I can go back somewhere and feel welcome and we can feel celebrated and, and we can celebrate the fans because it really was a special thing. And the parade is what that's all about. You know, if we just got on a bunch of boats and got drunk and rode around in a circle and didn't tell anybody, it'd be awkward. The reason it's awesome is because there's hundreds and thousands and millions of people actually out there, and we get to go all the way up to the steps. And from what I remember about the parade, it was a lot of fun. Ray, the great part of that is um, is the parade and what the parade means. Um, the game, the championship, the whole thing. But the parade, and, and we've had players and coaches from, on Tells Your Story, from the Phillies of 1980 and 2008 from the we had the coach of the 83 Sixers Billy Cunningham as a guest for tells your story we had members of those Flyer Stanley Cup teams you heard Bob Clark just earlier and the Super Bowl Eagles and what it means to the city and the fans to win it and the outpourings you see at those parades Ray I don't know if other cities do it as well as Philadelphia does uh I guess I'm sounding very biased when I say this, but uh, I don't think they do. Uh, I think there's a, just a spirit in this city that comes alive uh, in those occasions, those rare occasions. They don't happen. They don't happen all that often. My goodness, we had to wait 52 years for a Super Bowl parade. Uh, but when they happen, when those moments happen, um, something takes over this city that's really, really special. And those of us that were there, those of us that have shared in all of those, and I have, I've been to all of them. Uh, I remember the first parade, nobody knew what a parade was. I mean, no one was doing those things back then. I mean, now it's just accepted as a matter of course. The, the first flyers when the Bobby Clark discussed. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that was the first one of its kind. I mean, there was this idea, oh, they're having a parade? Really? Oh, I mm, okay. I mean, that was kind of the way it was. And um, that that whole scene, that whole celebration sort of set the template for everybody else wanted to do something like it. The Flyers did it again the next year, and then other teams did it, and now you see it all over the place, and now it's just accepted. Okay, we win a championship, you're going to have a parade, but there was a beauty to the first one because there was kind of an innocence to it. No one exactly knew what they were doing, but everybody, went, but everybody went out and had a good time. Yeah, um, and, and I'm really... Uh, what, I don't know the word I'm looking for. I'm impressed with how much it means to the players, those parades. Because the parades, yeah, they are for the team and the players. But you hear it from Chris Long and you hear it from Bob Clark and from all these guys how it really connects them with the fan base. Because normally they're performing on the field, on the ice, right? In this one, 
it's like this giant community hug. It is. It is. And it goes across it goes across all the lines. I mean, the basketball team, the baseball team, I mean, the Phillies parades are separated by generations. You know, you had the 80 team with Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt and Tug McGraw and those guys. And then you had the later team, the team that came along with, with Brad Lidge and Chase Utley and his famous victory speech. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, it's it all kind of comes together. I mean, even even if they're separated by decades, not just years, but decades, there's a, there's a thread that runs through the whole thing that is so wonderful and so Philadelphia that uh, anybody from this city, whether you're a sports fan or not, you can't help but get caught up in it. Yeah, and a guy like Chris Long, who was here for a very short time, two seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for Chris Long, that is something that he will always hold, and um, it means so much to us. Anyway, this has really been a, a fun hour for us to relive and share some of the great moments of the interviews that we've really enjoyed doing on Tell Us Your Story. This is the first of several best of episodes that we plan to do and we uh we always appreciate our audience and you guys being part of it so that's going to end this hour tell us your story best of episode sponsored by meridian bank one of the area's best business banks learn why at meridianbanker.com slash wip well that was pretty fun right oh sure it really was <laughs> really, yeah it really was brought back a lot of memories it um uh, i gotta i gotta you know Tip your hat to you, man. This was your idea. Tell us your story was your creation. And uh, I don't think either of us thought we'd still be doing it two years later, but here we are. Yeah, well, it was born out of need and and desperation because we didn't feel like just, I mean, we do enough stupid subjects. We didn't feel like just adding more. Uh, And listen, both of you and I come from a journalism background and like doing long-form interviews, and this gave us the opportunity to do it. And again, once we started doing it, we have kept doing it. Um, And you you did the nice job of picking out all of the highlights for this one. I mean, you went through and listened to all of the ones we did and pulled out the moments, and we're doing it again the next two weeks. Which one, what's next week? Do you remember what the theme is next week? Yeah, next week is, uh, we're calling it Roots. And it's uh, it's people talking about where they grew up, how they grew up, how they made it to Philadelphia, sort of their backstory. So it, it starts with that, but it also ends with it sort of tells the story about how people came to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. how they got here. And then the second part of it is some people talking about how they had to leave the city, being traded, yeah. being fired, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it's, it's both. It's kind of how these people grew up and came to Philly and then how they left Philadelphia at the end. So that's uh, and that's going to be it's some really interesting stuff. Bob Clark makes a reappearance. Keith Jones talks about growing up on his farm and finding yes. out that he was drafted into the NHL. <laughs> you know, Dick Vermeil talks. It's such a great it's, story. It's funny, and then we have Dick Vermeil talks about working in his father's garage, and um, and it's you know Phil Martelli talks about the pain of being let go at St. Joseph. So I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff in here, but it's all good and it's all listenable, and it's going to bring back tremendous memories to anyone who tunes in. Yeah, and we will podcast this episode, so if you want to find it later and listen to it later, you, you certainly can. All right, um, the uh, the big sporting event today is going to be the Liber- Liberty Bell, excuse me, which starts in a little while. Uh, tell Philadelphia fans, give us a couple of people that, you know, maybe we should look at who may be down the road wearing uh, wearing green. Well, I think that there's, as I said, I, there's this is a, a draft that's very heavy on uh, defensive linemen. And I think that that's, we all agree that's an area where the Eagles could certainly use some help. And, uh, you know, one of the guys that, this is no surprise, I mean, Jermaine Johnson is a guy from Florida State who started at Georgia, transferred to Florida State, and was a really good player this year uh, and got down to the Senior Bowl and has been really, really good down there. And if the Eagles are going to go looking for, if the Eagles are going to go looking for pass rushers, edge rushers, which they clearly need to improve their pass rush, um, there are a number of really good ones in this draft. Kayvon Thiebaud is, uh, from Oregon is one. Uh, Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan is obviously another one. But one of the guys that's going to be in this game today that's worth uh, definitely worth looking at is Jermaine Johnson, who uh, is really a good player and probably is still going to be on the board in that area where the Eagles are going to be picking. He's probably going to be about a 15-16 kind of guy, so he's worth keeping your eyes on. All right. Anybody else? Linebacker? Give me a linebacker. Well, if I give you a linebacker... Um, they drafted one fifty forty. 40... How many years? 44 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 79. Yeah, 43 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Um, there's actually a couple of them. Um, 
you know, a couple of my Georgia guys, a couple of the Georgia guys, you know, Quay Walker and uh, Trayvon Walker uh, are, are two guys from the University of Georgia um, who are outstanding players who are in this game today. And also, I believe, you know, to me are probably going to be at least one of them will be a first round pick. Maybe one will be a second round pick. But those are the kind of guys if the Eagles really do want to upgrade that area of their defense and Lord knows they need to. I mean, if you watch the NFL this year. I mean, you can talk all you want about linebackers aren't on the field all the time and they don't play that many snaps, but really good linebackers do and really good linebackers make a difference. I mean, look at what difference Micah Parsons made down in Dallas. You got some of those kind of players in this draft, and these two kids from Georgia are definitely in that category. All right, anybody in the secondary? In the secondary, yeah, Ahmad Gardner is a cornerback from Cincinnati. The Cincinnati team that made the Final Four a little outclassed once they got there, but it wasn't the fault of their cornerbacks. Their defense, they, had, they didn't have the athletes top to bottom that Alabama did, but they had the two cornerbacks can play with anybody, and Ahmad Gardner is definitely one of those guys. I mean, he's, uh, he's got great size. He's six foot three. He's 200 pounds. He's sort of the prototype of what you want your cornerback to be, and he's definitely, he's definitely in that group. And uh, uh, Trent, Trent McGuffey is a guy that I like a lot from the University of Washington, smaller, quicker kind of guy. Uh, but he's one of those guys that's going to be a mid-first-round pick who also will be sort of available to the Eagles in that 15, 16, 19 range if they feel like they want to add another corner, which, to be honest, they could probably use. And also a safety as well. They probably need a safety. Mm-hmm. And, right, well, and, and I'll, I'll throw a name out there. I'll, I'll tell you Daxton Hill from Michigan is a safety, a big hitter, good blitzer. And he's going to be in this game. So that's maybe a half a dozen names to keep your eye on. But I mean, I'm, I think like most people, I'm probably concentrating on the defensive side of the ball. As am I, although that quarterback from Liberty is going to be interesting to watch in this spotlight. All right, we need a caller of the day to win a $50 gift certificate. Who do you got, Dan Wilson? Yeah, we're going with Steve in Charlotte. Uh, he All called right. in. He's got, I'm blanking on the school, but he's got a son playing in a big college basketball game down there in North Carolina today. Uh, and he also had a, uh, pretty good sports point as well so we're going to give it very much he wins a 50 dollars gift card to shy vintage sports where there's a story in every stitch stick out check out their throwback apparel at their center city location or shibesports.com ray you and i will be back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m yes we will enjoy the rest of your day stay tuned go birds radio coming up next with james and elliot for ray and i thanks to dan wilson we'll see you tomorrow right here on 94 wip Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.